You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter in a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. Hey, Don, it's the 28th of December and it's sunny. Isn't that cool? It is the first sunny day we've had in quite a number, actually, where we, we woke up to fog this morning. Okay, let's back up here. We're recording this program December 28th. 2022 to broadcast on December 29th, 2022, the last Davis Garden Show program of the year. And we woke up to dense fog this morning. I thought, okay, here we go. Another dreary day because we've had about, what, 10 in a row where it was either raining or extremely dense fog. Fog is cool and pretty in limited doses, but we were getting to a pattern of day after day without sunshine. Well, it is spectacularly sunny right now. I don't see a cloud in the sky except way off to the southwest here where I'm sitting gazing out at my farm in Dixon. 45 degrees right now, going up to a high today of 52, which is a little bit below our average high for the month of December. Dropping down tonight to only 41 because we've got rain likely again. We've got rain on Thursday, the day of the program. It's only going to be 51 degrees is our high and the low thursday night with rain continuing is only going to be 45 degrees so we got a six degree temperature swing ahead for the day thursday the day of the broadcast more rain continuing friday 59 degrees so this is warm ish rain friday night is only going to get down to 52 a seven degree temperature swing 100 percent chance of showers <laughs> friday night 100 percent chance of rain saturday warming up to a balmy 58 dropping down Ooh, cold saturday night 41 degrees with a chance of rain so we've got some breaks in the clouds presumably if it's going to get that much lower on saturday night than friday night yeah new year's day sunny sunny with a high near 55 patchy fog sunday night uh, after about 1 a.m then partly cloudy so the low will get back down into the 30s upper 30s about 38 and here we go again chance of rain monday rain likely monday night rain likely tuesday if you want to see the the specifics Weather underground, of course, always gives you really, really specific like uh, rainfall amounts, which I think is hilarious. But what they're telling us is that this week we're going to get about two and a quarter more inches before the end of the day Saturday. Okay, we've already had about an inch and a half here in this last storm, another two and a quarter inches, one day gap. And then if I add these all up, a little over three inches Monday through Friday, the first week of 2023. So about six inches of rain coming in over the next roughly 10-day period. We're ahead of schedule, ahead of average, and actually, interestingly, the lowest rainfall totals from this last storm were pretty much right around here. Uh, they got more rain up in wine country, all around Lake Berryessa, up in the foothills, up in, you know, everywhere else got a lot of rain. We only got, I think, about an inch and a half in the Dixon-Vacaville area. Most Davis people who were posting on various forms of social media said inch to an inch and a half out of this last storm. But this is a classic atmospheric river. It's aiming straight at us. If you go out there and find some of the really cool radar graphics that you can look at, it's aimed right at Northern California. It's going to go on for several days. So by the end of this, we should be well ahead of rainfall. This is warmer rain. Previous had been 
really cold snow sticking up in the Sierra. This will be warmer, going to be higher elevation snow, but it's really building up up there. So you said that we didn't have as much rain here as some of the other areas of California. Uh, what about the flood situation? Because we don't have any problems here, but aren't people having floods? There's a risk of it. There actually is a, uh, a flood watch in effect from Friday morning through late Saturday night caused by excessive rainfall locally, which applies to a portion of Northern California, including the Carquinas Strait in the Delta, central Sacramento Valley to the northern San Joaquin Valley. Raising our hands. <laughs> OK, we're central Sacramento Valley, so that's us. Friday morning through late Saturday night, excessive runoff may result in flooding of rivers, creeks, streams, and other low-lying and flood-prone locations. So just because of the amount that's going to be coming down all at once, the fact that the soil is already saturated, there is some risk of flooding with this next series of storms that's coming in. Yes. And people know to not drive through flooded places because you never <laughs> know whether it's a road or... There's been a hole washed into it. Yeah, right over over here in Solano County, the road crews simply go out before heavy storms, put up signs that say road flooded. And uh, we all know which roads those are going to be, and we, we yep. avoid those. But if and it's always them, the same spots. It is, it's the same yeah. spots. We The roads were put in before the fields were level. This is an interesting fact. The roads were put in years ago when we actually had some rolling terrain here. If you come to Davis, as I did, as you did, you arrive here, the thing you really notice about this area is how unbelievably flat it is. If you grew up like I did in an area that clings to the hills of coastal Southern California, or as you did, where there's actually, you know, hills and valleys and things like that, I believe, you get here and, and lots it's of just, little lakes and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, we don't have very many of those here or creeks or much of that. And uh, you you drive over uh, Grapevine, you come down into the valley, you look ahead on your way to go to college at UC Davis. It is the flattest horizon you've ever seen. Part of that is that we were rolling terrain before irrigation districts were created. Irrigation districts came in and they laser leveled the fields. Our field is almost perfectly level. I can I can put flood at one end of the field and know exactly how quickly it will progress down the rows and I can actually irrigate my whole 13 acres just by flooding the ground because it was leveled that smoothly. And I've watched this done to other properties here. There's a handful of properties in the area that are still the old fashioned terrain. If you wanna see a really good example, what it used to look like around here, Glide Ranch out west of Davis. Across the street is Russell Ranch. It's off of Russell Boulevard. Glide Ranch is what it used to look like. I won't say it was, you know, exciting topography, but there were actual changes from one part to another. Higher here, lower there. Now everything is just flat, flat, flat as can be. We get an inch or two of rain. That soil is saturated. Another inch or two get, begins to run off and uh, goes into the ditches and the sloughs. And those ditches aren't always as perfectly maintained as we would like. And sometimes it floods out onto roads that were put in before those farms were leveled. So those are where the predictable low-lying areas are that water is going to collect. We may see some flooding. Main point is lots of rainfall, lots of snow. Interesting year, lots of fog. And boy, have we had a lot of chilling hours. I might as well bump this one up to the head of the line here and talk about it. We've got uh, 689 chilling hours to date compared with last what? year, 4, 689. <laughs> 
as of December like, twenty eighth. We, we get like seven hundred as our average, right? Eight hundred. Our, our average is eight hundred to eight hundred and fifty. Uh, that's by the end of February. We're not even in January yet. As an example, <laughs> the last few years have ranged from four hundred ninety two, three eighty three, four forty one, five hundred four. We're at six hundred eighty nine for this year. Actually, that means a lot of deciduous species have already met their chilling requirements. You know, they've already received what they need to to break dormancy. So let's hope we come out of this slowly and gradually and nothing comes into bloom prematurely. All right, we got a lot to talk about. First of all, KDRT is community radio. KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. Then I want to tell you that I have a radio show. It's called That's Life. And if you have a topic that you would like to have more information about, like, I don't know, mushrooms or or jazz or, mushrooms or what's happening out of the... What? Mushrooms or jazz? Yeah, I interviewed the mushroom <laughs> professor. Yeah. yeah. His, name, yeah. his name's Mike. He's really nice. Yeah. And I interviewed the jazz guy. And, and in fact, I'm going to be playing those... Uh, three interviews that I did with him, that being done for, uh, for the next three weeks. So okay. know, I'm covered, you're covered, and yep. KDRT is always covered. If you want to know who's doing what when, there is a schedule. Go to kdrt.org, look at the schedule tab, and you can find out what shows are going to be on when. And you can find a little bit about the people who are producing the shows, because they have makers Oh, we got the announcement of a an annual contest that was on hiatus during COVID, more or less, but uh, has resumed, and that is Art Shapiro. I think I sent this one right over to you. Art Shapiro's uh, butterfly contest. Who is Art Shapiro again? Dr. Art Shapiro is probably the foremost butterfly expert. Uh, well, he's here at UC Davis, so we'll claim him as the best in the world. <laughs> Shapiro <laughs> has been monitoring butterfly populations in the Sacramento Valley at a number of locations for 50 years years 50 years and uh he is he has a contest every year and i don't have it in front of me so i was hoping you had it in front of you i have it right here yeah and (laughs) (laughs) um so this is the the year cabbage butterfly contest It, it he he buys a pitcher of beer for whoever comes in with the first adult uh Cabbage moth, cabbage butterfly. Cabbage, cabbage anyway, white uh, butterfly. The yes. rules. The rules. This must be an adult, no caterpillars or pupae, and be captured outdoors. It must be brought in alive to the <laughs> Department of Evolution and Ecology Office, 2320 Store Hall, UC Davis, during work hours, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, with the full data, exact time, date, and location of capture, and the contact information of the collector, address, phone number, or email. The receptionist will certify that it is alive and refrigerate it. If it's collected on a weekend or holiday, it can be kept in the refrigerator for a few days. Do not freeze it. <laughs> Shapiro is <laughs> the sole judge. Yeah. All right. <laughs> And, and then it goes on to talk about where you can find these things. But, you know, it's it, it's sort of it's sort of ridiculous to even do that because all of his graduate students are out there looking at the spots where the butterflies are going to be. Well, they know the, 
Right. For the many years that he's done this, he has won his own contest, except that three times a graduate students of his actually won. And uh, that's pretty good. And in 2016, a young gentleman named Jacob Montgomery collected the winner in West Davis. I know Jacob. He's a good friend of my kids. And so that's the first non-Shapiro, non-grad student winner that I can remember going back as many years as he's been doing this. It is that white butterfly that oviposits on your broccoli and makes little caterpillars. And uh, so it should be pretty easy to find one of these in your backyard, I would think, if you have a winter vegetable garden, although they are, you know, it gets cold, they're not as active. We deal with these a lot. We deal with their larvae a lot with people who plant in September, October, early November, broccoli, cauliflower, all those related plants in the mustard family and promptly get a whole bunch of caterpillars on them. That's what we're after here. And he does make an interesting note here that um, he was still finding... um, uh, it's of special special interest this year, says Dr. Shapiro, because as of a few days ago, the bug was still flying and laying eggs, which will result in a non-diapause pupa. Depending on the weather, that could mean an earlier than usual emergence. There's even a slight chance that the fall brood is not even over yet. So you've got a good chance going out there in your garden, checking the mustard family relatives of winning this contest. If you just sit there long enough, wait for one of these white butterflies to come along, you can go share a picture of beer with one of the most interesting lepidopteran ecologists in the world. Okay, so if I go out there and I see this, and there it is, it's beautiful. Catch it. Uh, what, how, do you get, how do you catch butterfly, Don? Uh, well, I grew up with a butterfly collector. You keep a net handy at all times. That's how you catch it very carefully. If you don't have a net, if you don't have a net, what do you do? Uh, two hands very carefully cupped over it as it lands to pupate on your broccoli. <laughs> right, and then you care you you, you drive it. into camp. Carrying it in one your hand. hand. No. <laughs> you get one of those plastic containers with a lid on it and put the butterfly in it. I think we understand why his grad students are the usual winners, or he is, because they always have butterfly nets handy. My mother never traveled without a butterfly net. She had one in her car at all times. Uh, just in case an interesting butterfly happened by, mom was going to catch it, squish its thorax, and add it to her collection. So, all right. So... We let's morph from this into not broccoli, but trees. Yeah. You were talking about it. Isn't it time for those bare root trees to come in soon? Indeed. We have been informed by our bare root supplier and the main bare root fruit tree supplier still out there servicing, uh, serving uh, uh, independent garden centers, hardware chains, and so forth is Dave Wilson Nursery. Dave Wilson's shipping season has begun. Ours will be actually arriving tomorrow, the 29th of December, and it takes us a couple days to get them processed and lined out and covered with shavings and you have the roots covered and all that kind of thing. I have to explain every winter to various customers what bare root means. It is a literal term. These are trees that are grown in a field, like a a crop, like a row crop. And they're grown, uh, they plant the rootstock and then they bud on the variety that you're going to plant. Let's say it's a Alberta peach that's grown on a level rootstock. The rootstock is planted. Workers go down the line, bud on the the variety that you're actually buying. So the roots are one thing and the top is another. They grow it up for a season or two seasons, depending on what it is. Mostly one season, one year trees or into the next season. And then when they go dormant in the late fall, they go with a fascinating machine that digs them all up and takes them out of the dirt, shakes the dirt off, washes it off, 
carry them off to to uh, storage facilities where they process them and ship them out all over the country. And the very first of them are going out this week, heading to nurseries in Central California, Southern California, and Northern California. And then gradually that expands into colder regions. Obviously, if you're under snow, your local nursery is not going to be receiving bare root fruit trees yet. They come in when they will stay dormant. That's important. But when it's not so cold that the roots might be injured by you know additional freezing and desiccating conditions. So nurseries still do this in a lot of places. There's a lot of places where this is fading, but nurseries such as my own and the others in the area here in Sacramento Valley will be receiving our largest selection of deciduous fruit species and some ornamentals. That's been declining very dramatically over the last few years, but fruit species, peaches, plums, nectarines, pluots, apricots, apples, pears, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Um, everything except citrus. Everything that is deciduous, basically, yes. And this is the important thing. Many of us have citrus in stock, but you don't bear root a citrus because it never has a dormant period. So you bear root these things because they're dormant and they can be held in shavings or sand or whatever that particular nursery has chosen to use as long as they stay dormant, which for us, I hate to say this, has been a shorter and shorter period each year. Definite effect of climate change is trees budding out in the bare root bins earlier and earlier each year, but we can hold them dormant through February, typically, all through January, at least to mid-February, late February. At that point, some of them start to bud and start to show some root growth and have to get into pots right away. But during that six to eight week period, there are more types of fruit trees available at the average garden center and many hardware stores, including the bigger chains, uh, than any other time of year. That's when you're have, have likeliest to have, let's say 10 or 12 varieties of peaches instead of just two or three. Okay. So if I wanted to, for example, oh, plant a plum and I, I come in and I find the plum that I'd like to plant, that's the species I want. Mm -hmm. And my yard isn't quite ready for it. And I'm not willing to go out there at 50 degrees and dig <laughs> a hole in the ground. So what do we do? Do I say, oh, I want to buy that one, I pay you and you tag it? Or do I say, I want to buy that one, you hand it to me and I put it in a pot? What do we do? It varies from one place to another. A lot of bigger places would not be willing to tag it and hold it because that does get to be very complicated, I can tell you from experience, although we do that. Um, most of them would prefer that you take it so that you have it when your soil conditions and temperatures are suitable for your planting. I'm not as concerned about the 50 degrees. 50 degrees is a wonderful temperature for you to be out there planting things in as far as the tree is concerned. <laughs> not you, as far as I'm concerned. You may have other opinions about this. But hey, I'm, really... I'm the one whose leaves California when it gets cold <laughs> in the winter to go someplace warm. Yes. All right. I think the temperature is below 50. We're going to, I don't know, Mazatlan. <laughs> no, you have. The, I'm really less concerned about temperature than I am about uh, soil moisture. So if I mentioned to the staff, we're back to a, a situation we haven't faced here in probably at least a decade, where the soil is going to be too muddy mm -hmm. when these things arrive for our customers to dig holes and plant them. You can't dig a hole when the soil is too muddy. You'll do structural damage to the soil. So we'll have a short period, at least, it sounds like a week or so, in which it's just, you know, not only is it raining that particular day, so no one's going to be planting anything, but for a couple of days after that rain, if not several days after that rain, we got three inches of rain, as we're going to apparently in this week, and another three inches next week. That's six inches of rain. It's going to take seven to 10 days for that to drain out sufficiently for most soils around the Davis, Woodland, Dixon area to become workable. 
Uh, it really depends on your clay content and to how workable they will be. I don't want you digging a hole where you're slicking the side of the hole as you try and do it. If you if you pull it up with a shovel and it's a big glob of mud, that's not good. You shouldn't be digging that hole. You should wait. So you need to hold that tree with its roots protected from drying out. That's really the only thing. You can do a process called healing in, which means you simply put it on the ground somewhere, cover those roots with anything. I've used anything ranging from wet leaves to shavings that I happen to have around because I'm in the bare root business to potting soil because I had a wet bag of it out there. And so I just put them on the ground where I won't care later about just raking that potting soil off. And I heap it on the roots to keep the roots cool and moist. It's okay to hold things for several days in damp materials like that. Temporarily plunging it in water works. Uh, we do that actually when we're going out and plant digging the holes. We like to plunge them in water to rehydrate them. I try not to do that for more than a few hours, though. So sticking it in a big trough of water and leaving it there for several days, not good. That's no oxygen. Those roots will die. But keeping them covered with something damp works very well. If there's going to be a major delay, maybe you should pot it up but then you might have to prune the roots or bend them to get it into the container. So it's far better. One of the big advantages of the bare root season is you get these great big root systems. You get roots that typically would be hard to squeeze into a 15 gallon container, much less down into something like a five gallon container. So if you can possibly conserve that whole root system, keep it adequately moist until you can dig a hole, that's the very best thing to do. But it is important to get them in the ground right away. We typically hand them to people and try to give them all this information in a very short period of time. But uh, one of the simplest things you can do, at least temporarily, is put a big plastic bag over the roots so that they will sweat in there rather than desiccating. I'm much more concerned about roots drying out than uh, than anything as at this time of year. Almost always bare root tree failures have to do with the roots having dried out before it went in the ground or improper watering after it was planted. So if I had like a, a roller, a wheelbarrow, or something like that, and I Perfect. have one that's got a couple of uh, a couple of wheels on it, so it's not going to fall over. Yep. And if I if I did that, set the tree in it, and then put a few bags of potting soil, because yeah. I, I have some potting soil, yep. would that hold it sufficiently? And would I be able to get out of that potting soil to plant it? Yeah, you should be able to hold it that way for several weeks. The tree will stay completely dormant typically through the month of January. <clears throat> this is fruit trees. We'll talk about roses in a moment. But, so you you're fine. We don't usually see roots beginning to emerge the very first that do it are the plums in our bare root bins and that's usually about the second or third week of february so generally here in sacramento valley usda zone 9 sunset zone 14 8 and 9 are comparable and this goes for much of the bay area and interior southern california as well you got about a six week window in which they'll stay fully dormant now if you're in a frost free part of southern california or you're in one of those zones like los angeles where we get up into the 70s in january that's not great no, that's, better get, that's not dormant no. that's not dormant anymore better get no. them in the ground i do remember the bare root season was a very short thing down there because they would come in dormant and then almost immediately break dormancy so it depends on where you're listening but here in the valley and in in, in east bay most of the bay area we're staying cold enough that the trees will stay dormant for a few weeks it's just we don't want those roots to dry out that's the important thing and the microclimate it might make a difference if I had it so it was sitting in the sun, it might make it warm enough to do something, whereas right. if I put it on the other side of the shed so it was in the shade, that would be better? Yeah, I have held bare root trees on my farm often for weeks because I've had to for one reason or another, particularly when we've had wet years. And I'll put them in the shade. I'll cover the roots with something porous but moist. Actually, leaves have worked very well, leaves combined with old potting soil, things like that. And that works great. I just get nervous if we start getting up into the 60s and 70s each day and I don't 
don't have them in the ground. And that's happened, unfortunately. What I have been surprised by is how how resilient these bare root trees can be. As a retailer, it's frustrating when someone brings back a bare root tree that didn't grow before it had a chance to grow. This happens every year. Okay, someone comes in in like March, walking in with the tree they had put in the ground and it hasn't grown yet. So they're sure it's dead. So they pull it up and they bring it back and we just smile and give them a replacement or a refund or whatever you do in retail. We promptly take that and we soak it in a trash can full of water and we pot it up and invariably they grow. Invariably. <laughs> so we now have a tree, we just move it into our stock and everything's fine. But <laughs> don't give up just because it doesn't bud out. Sometimes there's a significant delay in bare root plants budding out, even though we know they're alive. So you do the thumbnail test where you scratch the bark. We'll get this call first of April. I planted a peach tree. It hasn't done anything. Scratch the bark. It's green. It's still alive. It still has a chance to leaf out. So don't give up too early. But uh, they should stay dormant as long as the temperatures stay the way they are and you keep those roots moist. I'm really concerned about the roots drying out more than anything. And as you note, putting them in a more sheltered location where it's just shaded and stays sort of damp naturally is a better choice out in the sun. Wind is a big factor. We're sure to get a north wind at some point. It's really low humidity. They keep those roots moist. If worse comes to worse, I'll, I'll often I have livestock troughs around my property why not everybody does right so all this of course you all do so i throw them in one of the old ones that has a leak and i throw some shavings on top and i keep them damp until i can get them planted so what i'm hearing you say is if you got a bare root tree and you get it home and you can see the roots you're doing something wrong get those roots covered with something that keeps them moist now we get to roses and i've already had the first question people walking in when do your bare root roses come in I haven't ordered bare root roses at my garden center since 2009. And the reason I haven't done bare root roses is here's one of the distinct markers for climate change. When we first opened in the 1980s into the 1990s, I would order four or five, 600 roses bare root. And I'd order them. They'd arrive usually the first week of January, right after Christmas, one of those two week period. And I could hold them dormant and sell them through February. Then as time went by, they were budding out earlier and earlier and earlier. And so one year I got in 600, which was pretty typical for us. We're a very small nursery, 600 bare root roses. And they started budding out in the first week of February. In past years, I'd been able to sell 80 or 90% of my roses bare root and then just pot up the rest. That year I was only able to sell 50 or 60% and they were budding out. So I had 200 or so bare root roses to pot up at a little tiny garden center and hold until they were saleable. And that was when I started realizing that this was getting to be a worse problem every year. Roses don't stay dormant, especially if they have tea rose parentage, which is all the hybrid teas, the most popular. They come in dormant. Sometimes they still have leaves on them. They've barely gone dormant when they dig them. And then we they would just, within two or three weeks, they would start pushing their buds. And within four to six weeks, they would start growing and we can't hold them in bare root bins when that's happening my very good friend who was running operations over at capital nursery was managing their bare root roses and they began to realize they just could not hold several thousand bare root roses bare root so they took to potting them immediately when they came in and it's a direct reflection of night temperatures and the fact that they were breaking dormancy so they would bring them in he also said it was great because it kept the crews busy in the winter you know it's a slow time of year so you got something people could do you got ten thousand rose bushes to pot up that'll keep people busy for a couple of weeks but customers would come in upset because they wanted to save money getting them bare root well we just couldn't do it bare root wasn't holding bare root anymore and so breaking dormancy was a big issue and the fact that those of you out there who know about this whole bare root season thing are a diminishing number 
Uh, most people We're getting old, Don. We're not right. doing that anymore. I have commented that the people who come in asking for bare root roses mostly seem to be in their 70s and up, uh, who remember that there were these distinct cycles to the nursery industry and that January was a time to go get good deals on roses because nurseries would have a lot of them. They'd be relatively economical and so forth. It's just not happening much anymore. I don't know of any big retail nursery in the area or, of course, any of the hardware chains that bring in roses bare root, literally, and sell them that way. We were among the last when we stopped doing it over a decade ago. Most of them pop them up right away. Some do something that I disapprove of, although I've gotten some pretty cool roses this way. They bring them in in plastic bags. So there's still companies out there that grow roses bare root, prune the roots, wrap them in a plastic bag with a picture on the front and ship them out to, these are mostly hardware chains and you'll see them just, in boxes. Yeah, right? Not even boxes. These are just got their roots wrapped tight in a heavy plastic, heavy duty plastic bag. And so it's, wow. uh, that means that they've cut those roots small enough. You could fit it in a five gallon can. So you've lost some root system when you get them this way, they tend to be really inexpensive and I've gotten some interesting roses that way, but they're kind of dwarfed the first season because of what is done to them. Um, you'll still see these look, check them carefully. Some of these places, like the ones that are, let's say, pharmacies that happen to sell plant materials, bring them inside to display them. That's a terrible idea because they immediately break dormancy inside. It's 70 degrees in there. So check them for quality. Check them. Make sure they're you know viable. Scratch the bark if you have to to make sure the thing is still alive. Don't buy one that's been indoors for a couple of weeks trying to grow an interior environment. But there are always some weird varieties in those assortments. So if you're a rose collector... Like me, you just make a beeline over to those to see what weirdities they have. And you buy those in spite of the fact that it's not a great way to do roses. Rose bare root season is a thing of the past. Great selection of roses typically in the winter and early spring at nurseries, but typically in containers at this point. Well, that was a long talk about bare root season, which isn't that very long anymore. No, it's getting shorter. And I've also noticed one more thing about that. I'm noticing more and more of the fruit varieties are coming, uh, becoming available to us in containers from the same company, Dave Wilson Nursery, and there's others out there. Uh, instead of doing them bare root, the grapes, for example, berries, cane berries are all coming in in these tree liners, long sleeves. They're like a five inch square, 16 inch long container that they can root directly into. They can do them in greenhouses. So it's much more efficient in terms of space utilization. And I noticed on those lists, there's now some apples, there's now some plums, there's actually some of the woody trees that are being done this way. Part of this is that those companies all geared up for the major, major, major increase in almond and walnut acreage in California over the last decade. And many of them are selling them trees in these liners rather than bare root. It's got huge advantages from an orchard standpoint. You can order your trees in August. Have them delivered, plant them, get water to them, they're fine. Whereas bare root season, you better move fast. And if your soil isn't workable, you've got a problem. So many of these growers are converting over to container production of fruit species. And what I've observed is more and more of the familiar varieties that we sell are now showing up that way. It wouldn't surprise me at all. If you're listening to this program 10 years from now, (laughs) if you go to a nursery and they don't have very much in the way of bare root anymore, because it is a big thing to change over your whole retail for a this one six week season a lot of those places don't want to do that so you'll start finding peaches i noticed plums for example on their list right now in these tree liners and you know what i may buy some that way you might that might be the way of the future for a lot of these fruit trees it already is for apples it already is for almonds and walnuts because of the orchard production i think you're going to see more of that all right so when we talk about fruit trees 
bare root and then we've got the citrus which isn't bare root right but you put out a list this this uh, month in december of deciduous fruit trees vines and more and then you've got citrus tucked in there too so all of these things are the the various varieties and descriptions where is this document don is this, this on the website can people go get it they can go to redwoodbarn.com. And this is simply a list of the varieties we have or have guaranteed, uh, you know, booked ahead for this coming season. So I, for once, have blended deciduous trees and citrus because I actually know what citrus I'm going to have this spring for the first time in recorded history. I actually know what my vendor is going to be providing me. And so you can find this at redwoodbarn.com and it has a list of just the varieties coming in this way. This is not considered a list of everything you can grow, but it is with respect to stone fruits in particular and things like them. These are the varieties that I, at this point, think are best. I have, I'm only stocking about seven, eight varieties of peaches this year. In the past, I've stocked as many as 15. Why am I only stocking this many? Because I noticed over the years that I would sell out of these varieties way faster than the others because we were recommending them. These are the ones that we find ourselves, staff and owner of Redwood Barn, recommending over and over again. When we'd run out of these, of one of these, we'd move over to something else we had in stock. And so I finally looked and realized that we have actually a really good assortment of peaches, as one example, that can ripen from June, in the case of gold dust, to as late as late August, in the case of Rio Oso Gem. And with the six or seven varieties we have, you would have outstanding peaches all through the summer. And you don't probably need the 15 other varieties that are out there. I can get some of those if I wish to. But I can tell you that if you just plant a gold dust, fantastic Alberta, Arctic Supreme, Red Baron, Rioso Gem and O. Henry, you'll have six of the best peach varieties you can imagine. And you'll be inundated in peaches from mid-June through late August. So I've gone to ones that we tout highly. And so one of the reasons I wanted to mention this list is you'll find on here the varieties that I really think are exceptional for the Sacramento Valley. And it's not only ones we can grow here. There's lots of others. I have other varieties in my own orchard, and I will bring in some others. But these are the ones that I think are particularly outstanding. And I notice I'm looking at over this list that your pears, mm -hmm. you list one kind of European pear, and it's not a Bartlett. No, no, Bartlett is it's extremely a Warren. Warren is a lot like Bartlett in its texture and quality, but it's extremely resistant to fire blight. And before I would even put that on my list, I made sure I tested it in my own orchard. It gets actually zero fire blight. Bartlett is extremely susceptible to fire blight, which often kills the tree. So I don't recommend Bartlett pear at all. And I do suggest that pears are a good example. Ask locally, wherever you're listening, there are probably varieties that are better suited to your region. Uh, Warren is a very good one for our area. And there's a couple of others. Moonglow is another particularly good one. But in our area, and I know in the major pear growing areas, we were in the past, just for the record. This was a major pear-producing region. When we moved here, you and I, in the late 60s, 1970s, and 80s, there were thousands of acres of pears in this area. They've gone away. You know, orchard plantings go in trends and cycles, and farmers try different things. But uh, if a pear was going to get fire blight, it got it here. If it was on a scale of 1 to 10, if it was only like a, a 5 or 6, you would get fire blight, and it would be very damaging. So the ones that I recommend are very resistant to fire blight, a bacterial disease for which there is no practical control for homeowners. Uh, same thing goes with the 20, with the Asian pears. Unfortunately, there's one that I do carry because we have to, because it's a pollinizer for the others, 20th century, that is very susceptible to fire blight. But the other two, 
Shinko and Shinsiki have good fire blight resistance. You'll notice something else. How many varieties of apples are on this list? I don't know. Two. I closed the window. Two. Brayburn and Fuji. That's it. And there's a reason I don't have more apples is that this isn't really apple country. Most of the popular varieties are somewhat susceptible to fire blight. And these are two that are particularly well adapted here. They're not the only ones. You can grow Gravenstein. You can grow Granny Smith. There's a bunch of others that you can certainly grow here. Brayburn. Uh, but Fuji and uh, Gala is the other one. Fuji and Gala and Brayburn are three that are particularly well adapted here. Golden Delicious will grow pretty much anywhere. But again, this is not really apple country. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment. But um, you can grow them. But we're a hot, dry climate. And they're not drought tolerant. There's things that can go wrong, like heat waves <laughs> and fire blight. And so if I were planting just one tree in a backyard, it wouldn't be an apple tree. But if you really, 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 really want an apple, there are some varieties that are suitable. And that leads me to the next document that I happen to have sitting here, which is, what do you know about low chill apples? And there's a whole list there of apples with their uh, chilling hours. Yeah. Um, it says Don Wilson really has detailed descriptions of all of their fruit varieties. You find at Dave Wilson Nursery and their descriptions of apples, there's an interesting comment. Um, proven very productive in trial with much less than estimated chill hours. Huh, what does that mean? Did you just say less than estimated chill hours? Yes. So we've always known that there are regions where people grow apples, where it doesn't seem like they should be able to grow apples. Um, you know, in the hills behind San Diego County, in the hills behind Los Angeles, there's always been apple industry. Any place that people live in the United States of America, apples were like our very, the very first fruit trees that the people from Europe brought to America. A lot of them were varieties that were imported from Europe. A lot of them were grown from seed. Johnny Appleseed was a real person. He actually was an apple tree nursery owner, if you want to put it and summarize his career very briefly. <laughs> who spread apples all over the country. They were apples, by the way, for cider, not for fresh eating. They didn't really care what they tasted like. He didn't care if they were a little bit bitter. The key there was alcohol. But uh, you can take apples and squish them and just let them sit under normal fall temperature conditions and you'll get a 5 to 6% alcohol um, beverage. may not be terribly palatable, but what the heck. That's where apples came from in the United States, but they're grown everywhere in the U.S. because they're very cold tolerant, and they're also reasonably tolerant of a range of conditions. What they don't really like is warm winters and hot, dry summers. So there's, we're not really in apple country in Southern California, definitely not really in apple country, but wherever people live, there have been varieties that have been found to be acceptable. The Gravenstein apple, the classic applesauce apple is the apple of Sonoma County. It's the one that just did very, very well there. And so it, they've become famous for it. Uh, what we would always find is that uh, you'd list 800 to 1,000 chilling hours for a lot of apples. I mean, that's a pretty typical chilling hours range for many, many, many varieties, 800 to 1,000. Okay, well, here in Davis, we get 800, 850 on average. We have a lot of years like this one, well over 1,000. Uh, so many apples do very well here, but it had always been observed they could do well, could produce well in areas where they didn't seem like they were getting enough chilling. And this is part of the more current understanding of chilling hours is how they happen rather than the exact numerical value. So you need to go into fall normally, get chilling normally, and come out of, of cold normally. Any spike of high temperatures, not so great. Late warm temperatures in the fall, not so great. There are varieties that are more adaptable. But what they found uh, with, with this, the research that's being cited by Dave Wilson Nursery, many of the varieties like Cox's Orange Pippin, 
Golden Delicious. Um, let's take another one here. Ashmead's Kernel, a classic old heirloom apple. They were listed for 800 to 1,000 chilling hours, but people were getting very good results in areas where they had less than 500 chilling hours. So if you're listening in the Bay Area, particularly the East Bay, but also just in the Bay Area, if you go to your local Simis weather station, you look up what your chilling hours are on average. And if you get 400 to 500, you're likely to find some of these apples will do well for you, even though they say they need more chilling hours. And I think you'll find the Dave Wilson site very useful in this regard because they have this information. In particular, Bay Laurel Nursery, which is a mail order source for Dave Wilson Nursery stock. Let me back up and just say that again. Bay Laurel Nursery, which is a mail order nursery that sells almost the entire line of Dave Wilson nursery stock, lists many of them at 500 chilling hours, even though the label is going to say 800 or more. In other words, experiment a little bit. Uh, it's very likely that if you get at least a few hundred chilling hours, a lot of apples that you didn't think you could grow, you probably can grow. Now, if you're down in Southern California, my mom wanted an apple. People in our neighborhood wanted apple trees. Bear in mind, the chilling hours where I grew up were 50 in a good year. <laughs> okay, Maybe 100 in an excitingly cold winter. There are some very low chill apple varieties that are reasonably good quality. Anna, A-N-N-A, Anna or Anna only needs a couple hundred chilling hours. Very popular, I'm told, in Southern California. Dorset Golden, 100 chilling hours. This variety was found in the Bahamas, so evidently it can tolerate lower winter chilling. And uh, there's the one that my folks had called Beverly Hills, which they say needs 300 chilling hours. It fruited very well with less than 100 in La Jolla. Again, it's a pretty mediocre variety as far as flavor and quality goes, but my mom liked the fact that she could make applesauce from it. But there are some that are quite low. And if you're down there and you're going to a nursery and you're buying an apple and you're in an area that only gets a couple hundred chilling hours, you should probably focus on these very low chill varieties. But fairly low ones include Fuji and Gala and Granny Smith and Pink Lady. So there's some familiar varieties that you can certainly try as well. When you are in one of those cold chill areas and you're, you've got a backyard, you're going to plant one tree. Yeah. Does it make a little more sense to canvas the neighborhood and find out what apple trees are there? You know, talk to the neighbors, find out what the, the kind is, it, taste it, see if it tastes any good. Yeah. Maybe you've got a local farmer's market or a local master gardener center or something. Just get a little more local information. Yeah, farmer's market is a great idea. And you need to ask them where they're bringing their fruit from because, I mean, at the farmer's market in Davis, they often bring in things from over in the Fresno area. So they're not literally local, 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 but at least they can tell you. And many of the farmers are very hyper local. That's a very good idea because... Three to five years is a long time to wait to find out. That's about how long it takes for an apple to start producing, to find out that one, it doesn't produce, or two, it's so mediocre that it isn't worth the space. I can't think of most places in lowland California where if I had room for only one fruit tree in my backyard, it would it probably wouldn't be an apple. But if you're up in the elevation, you know, getting up into the foothills or the mountains, or you're very nostalgic, don't plant the Macintosh you grew up with in New York State, but there is an apple variety that you can probably grow. But yes, ask locally. Uh, Fred Hoffman, who does the show in Sacramento, finally took out his Mutsu after several years because it never fruited. Uh, you know, so this is the kind of experience you need to have that's very, very local. But there are varieties you can try. And if you're here in the valley and you're looking at an heirloom variety and it says it needs 800 to 1,000 hours, pretty good chance. Pretty good chance it'll do well for you here. What we have here that isn't good is the extreme heat. Uh, I've, we've now been through, you know, 
10 years in which we had two extremely severe droughts. Apples are not drought tolerant. If they get drought stressed as the fruit is developing, the fruit quality will be significantly impaired. We've had extreme heat. You know, September 2022, we hit 116 degrees two days in a row. We were over 105 for the entire week. All of the apples on my tree, all of the pears on that one tree were just burnt on the west side. They're not tolerant of that kind of heat. So these are not your best choice here in the Sacramento Valley when we're having increasing uh, heat waves and more droughts and all that kind of thing. I went ahead, all of my fruit trees had been on one line, all my peaches and plums and pluots and apricots and pears and apples. And I realized that the apples and pears needed water more often than everything else. So I ran a separate line for them just because they they were clearly showing stress compared to the stone fruits. So that's something to be aware of. These are not particularly drought tolerant. It's not your best choice in most parts of California, but there are some. Fuji is extremely well adapted. Anders is a variety that was mentioned to me by uh, Bay Area residents who moved into the Davis area. And it has done well here. And it's relatively low chill, four or 500 and a very, very good quality. So that's one to look for in Bay Area nurseries. And if you go to real nurseries down there that have been there for a while, hopefully the staff there know the varieties that they've been selling that they've had good feedback on. Because the problem is the hardware chains, the fruit selection is predetermined somewhere else. You know, I've told this story, but I should not probably local. Tell- Not local at all. You know, helping my folks as they were getting older and going over to the Whole Foods that was a couple miles away. Bear root season. I was there in January. In came the bear root fruit trees. And I'm looking at a place where there's 50 chilling hours and they were selling Bing cherries, red delicious apples, Blenheim apricots. Not nowhere within 50 miles would anybody be able to grow those varieties. But that was what was predetermined to ship to the Whole Foods in San Diego by a buyer somewhere else in the country. So again, buying local, asking local, master garden, and I think farmers markets are one of your best bets. To, they're out of season now, but going up to a farmers market where they're selling their citrus now and they had fruit late in the summer. Hey, what varieties of apples do you guys do well with here? Just ask them and uh, which ones really perform well and which ones have the best flavor and the best keeping quality and so on. Take your local conditions well. You've been talking about apples and how wonderful they are. And I'm leery because don't we have coddling moth problems and we don't get any good fruit anyway? We get a lot of wormy fruit. I mean, you can do what you want to to manage worms in, in the apple. Coddling moth is is prevalent everywhere apples are grown. Maybe less of a problem where they aren't as popular. Maybe you don't have as much of a population in coastal Southern California. I don't remember worms in my mom's apples. But uh, good news, it's usually just one worm per fruit. Uh, sprays are very challenging. How to spray them is very challenging. Timing of that is complicated. We will be sure to mention it as the bloom season comes around. So that the, those of you who have apples will be aware of it and talk about your organic options. But you know, one of the simplest organic options is to just bag some of the fruit. I know that sounds like a hassle, but I've talked to people who do it. There's these little fruit bags you can buy that are really cute, but you all also can just use a If you're in a relatively dry area, a paper sandwich bag, slip it over the fruit, fold it over and staple it. If you're, if of course, if it rains and you'd have to replace that, if you have uh, rain and you don't want to worry about that, a a uh, plastic bag, plastic sandwich bag, just slip it over, kind of seal it, snip off the corner so moisture will drain out. I know people who do this. I remember asking one of them, I said, is that really time consuming? He said, well, get up on a ladder and bag 20 or 30 apples takes just about as long as it took to haul out the sprayer and mix up the spray and spray the tree. She goes, and I know those 20 or 30 won't have worms in them. They'll be fine. And the others, you just cut the worms out and make them into applesauce. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I have a question. We haven't actually gotten very many questions lately, so why don't you tell people how they can send us a question? Davisgardenshow at gmail.com. All right. So it says, hi there. This is from Gaina. Uh, I just looked at the Davis Garden Show podcast area, and it is not clear what your airmail email is for the show. And we just told you. So there you go. So maybe, I'll, maybe, was, maybe I'll post that. That's <laughs> it might a not be good there. thing. That's yeah. a good thing to post. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Gaina. <laughs> uh, my question is, when do you actually need to remove leaves on the ground and plants versus keeping them for good bugs in topsoil. I am trying to keep leaves in place when I can, but there's a lot of Chinese maple leaves and birch leaves on my bullbine and grevillea lanagera. I have removed some of the leaves, but not all. Should I remove more of the leaves? My concern with leaves sitting on plants is whether they will trap moisture around the crown or the flower or something like that. So when we have periods of wet as we're about to have for the next oh, one or two weeks. If there are leaves sitting on a pansy and it's got a flower and the leaf starts to mold, that gray mold can move into the flower, which will probably get it anyway, and move from the flower down into the crown of the plant and actually rot the plant. As a retailer, I can assure you that we're not thrilled about day after day of rain if we have bedding plants out there because the bedding plants that are blooming, the flowers will mold. And we have to go out and groom them, which is really tedious. And in, if we don't, things like cyclamen, pansies, even snapdragons after a while, will start to get that gray mold, which usually just attacks older blossoms and things like that. But it can penetrate healthy tissue and can penetrate right down into the crown of the plant. It can rot a cyclamen, for example. So I'm concerned about leaves building up on desirable plants in that regard. A grevillea is a woody shrub. I'm not the least bit concerned about the leaves on there. They'll just disintegrate and fall down to the ground underneath the shrub. Bulbine or bulbini, that is a, a succulent plant. So leaves trapped around the stem with moisture and then warmth could lead to rot. So in that case, I would pull them out if, if I can. I mean, in our nursery, we're doing this all the time. Walking around, seeing where leaves fell down on succulents, for example, we'll, we'll gently pull them off or even blow them off with a little electric leaf blower or something like that because we're concerned about them causing rot right where they are. There's no time that they're a problem on the ground. They can just, it, once they get to the soil, they can disintegrate and do the good that they do. So I'm not concerned about the particular plants you mentioned, but if your coral bells, for example, get completely buried under sycamore leaves, you might never see them again. <laughs> so under my tree, I live under an enormous sycamore with an enormous walnut nearby, and the leaves come down six to 12 inches deep in some areas. If there are herbaceous perennials in there, I've actually been surprised and pleased how many of them will push through and grow and make benefit of this sudden mulch of leaf mold, but it's a lot at once. So generally, I try to go along. If it's a newly planted plant or something that I know is a little more tender or delicate that way, just pull them away from the crown of the plant. Otherwise, if you can possibly leave them on the ground, so so much the better. When you're talking about leaving the leaves on the ground, you mean yep. literally on the ground, not yep. on something above the ground. Well, what about bulbs? They're underground, so mm -hmm. they shouldn't be bothered by leaves on top of the surface, should they? Completely beneficial. It's just another added source of organic material and even provides a little, little bit of nutrients as they break down. So there's no reason to be concerned about bulbs or anything underground like that. Just plants with a crown that might might be engulfed or with things or you don't want that gray mold to get at them. Okay. I am going to have to rely on you and your computer to look at this next article because um, it's blurred out for me. I haven't, I haven't signed in yet. This is the Davis Enterprise article. Um, 
And it is an old one. It's February 2019, but it's a still good. It's by Don Shore, and it's The Flowers of Winter. So he has a huge picture of all these February gold daffodils. Now, this is December. We shouldn't be seeing February gold because that should be February, shouldn't it? We should rename that one in California to January Gold because it blooms in um, on my property about the fourth week of January now. But I sent you a picture right before we went online to do this. What was the picture that I sent you? Do you still Hold have? On. That? Let me pull it I'll up if, on my phone. I will, attempt no, remember, right I will attempt to remember to so, post this with the show description at kdrt.org. Okay, so one of them was very distinctive looking. I asked him what it was, and it says an ice flower. Yeah. A chimamanthus. And then he, post, he posted another picture, which is uh, uh, about seven or eight little short spiky uh, flower stalks with tiny little yellow flowers. I assume those are the flowers, are they? Yeah. Yep. Yep. What you're looking at is an inflorescence of a mahonia. And that's not the Mahonia most people know as our California native, the California native Mahonia. All right, for ta taxonomy geeks, Mahonias have all been moved to the genus Berberis. They're all considered barberries now, but we refer to them as Mahonias because that's how we learned them. And, and they're still, to me, distinct from barberries in many ways. Um, Mahonia aquifolium is our native California and Oregon, sometimes called Oregon holly grape or something like that, a name which makes no sense whatsoever. Mahonia is a, a shiny leaf. Prickly leaves, yellow flowers, in the case of aquifolium, in January. But the case of the hybrid, or this uh, species from Asia, the Mahonia lomariifolia, it blooms in December, and it's bright yellow. So having something bright yellow blooming in December is a pretty cool thing. There's not that much blooming out there right now. This Mahonia consistently blooms in the month of December. It's the non-native species. There's a bunch of new hybrids. If you're a fan of the big orange hardware chain or the big blue hardware chain, Home Depot and Lowe's or respectively, you're going to start seeing some Mahonias there that are really different. They have the same flowers. They're blooming right now. So blooming in December, those cool compound leaves, divided leaves that are shiny and leathery looking, but you'll notice this big difference. They're not scratchy. These new hybrids are not scratchy or thorny. They are soft textured. There's one that's called Caress. Okay, that gives you an idea. <laughs> <laughs> you could actually caress this one. You wouldn't go caressing Mahonia aquifolium. There is no question you wouldn't go caressing Mahonia lomaria folia. There are scratchy, thorny things. You plant those under your window for, you know, for privacy and security. These are softer. They have a grayish green leaf. They bloom in midwinter. Their blooms are followed by little steely blue berries that songbirds apparently like. At least I assume they do because the berries disappear and I don't find them on the ground. So I'm going to assume that small birds are eating them. And they're as tough as can be and they can grow in total shade and will bloom in total shade, but they also can take a surprising amount of sun. Reasonably drought tolerant, very drought tolerant in the shade, reasonably drought tolerant in the sun. It's just one of these very versatile, adaptable plants, Mahonia as a genus. Didn't sell that well for years because they were so scratchy, like barberries. There's not that many people that want a really thorny, scratchy plant, except for certain rather specialized situations. But these new softer textured ones broaden the market considerably. But the first thing is a really interesting flower, Chimonanthus Precox, ice flower. Before we get off of the uh, yellow flower December astonishment that you seem to have, I want to bring to mind the yellow flower in December, which has been with us for years and years and years. Right. The bush daisy. 
Yeah, Uriops. Uriops pectinatus as a um, golden bush daisy here in the valley and in coastal California. Blooms right, it starts in October, actually, late October, early November. Heavily blooming midwinter all the way into spring and early summer and generally stops when we get real hot. Good big background shrub, full sun, drought tolerant, great addition to low water landscapes. Typically a three to five year plant in terms of looking nice in the landscape, although they can go on for years. One of those plants that sort of falls apart after four or five years. Cutting them back works sometimes, but not always. But if you just, you're doing a new landscape with low water plants and you got a lot of things that are going to take their time to grow like native salvias or something, put in a couple of Uriops pectinatus. It can take full sun, take dry soil. And as those other plants are filling in, you'll probably be ready to take it out in a few years. Beneficials are always on the flowers of Uriops. It's very hard for me to take a picture of a, one of those bush daisy flowers without either a surfed fly or some one of our native bees landing there while I'm taking the picture. So clearly they're drawing beneficials. And also those Mahonias. It is well known that that color of yellow, which is called clown yellow, very strongly attracts certain types of insects. In fact, it's used in, in monitoring. If you want to monitor whiteflies in a greenhouse, you take that shade of yellow on a piece of paper, you spray Tanglefoot onto that bright yellow paper, and you hang it in your greenhouse. And whiteflies will zoom right over and smash into it and get stuck. It's a very simple way to monitor them because many insects are attracted to bright yellow. Well, something blooming yellow in the middle of the winter in your garden is a good way to keep beneficial insects in and about the place as the you go through the winter and wait for aphids to show up and growth to begin in the spring. You're starting a good population of beneficial insects. So the Mahonia and the Uriops both do that. What the Chimonanthus does is it smells like spice cake and it blooms in December. I always go out sometime around Christmas to see if it's in bloom because I want to take a picture of it. And indeed, once again, as usual, the first blooms are opening a couple days before Christmas. It's not an exciting flower, sort of a translucent, pale, creamy white with a pinker center, but it smells like spice cake. And it's got that kind of fragrance like sarcococa where you'll be walking by going, wow, Where's that smell coming from? And you're looking around trying to find it. This little nondescript flower over there on the shrub nearby is what's drawing your attention. So first brought to my attention by customers from Persia, where it is very common, apparently. They gave, one of them gave me one of these to grow. Now I start seeds from it and I have completed the cycle by giving it to another customer who's Persian, who's growing it himself. It's apparently a very familiar flower there where it is called ice flower. It blooms in the middle of the winter, even with snow on the ground or on the bush itself, this tree, this shrub really will be in bloom. So lots of things you can plant midwinter to give you color here in the Sacramento Valley, all over California, actually, as long as you're lower elevation, that includes bush daisies and mahonias and things like that. You can still plant bulbs. You can plant pansies, violas, snapdragons, cyclamen, calendulas, lots of things for bloom here. Even with these gloomy days we've been having, these are plants that will root in nicely and give you blooms during the sunny periods of the winter. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.